Hello, everybody, and welcome to the first ever Innate Strength Podcast. My name is Justin. I am your host, and I am super excited to be running this podcast. I've been wanting to do this for a very long time, and it's taking me a very long time to make sure I can do it to the best of my ability. There are lots of podcasts out there, so the first question I had to ask was, if I do a podcast, am I just adding a drop into the ocean, or can I add something new to the information that's out there? And I believe the conclusion I found And the goal of this podcast, the mission of this podcast, is to allow people who listen to send in their own questions so that I can answer them on the podcast, either myself or the guest speakers that I'll have coming on in the future. These questions are typically going to pertain to health, fitness, and nutrition, anything in that sphere of the world. I think there's a lot of good information out there, and I think there's a lot of bad information out there, and there's a lot of just eh information And I really want to make sure if people are listening to a podcast or reading a book that they're reading information and either knowing how to interpret the information well so that they don't read into information that might be false, but also they can read information that is actually useful for them. And so the goal of this podcast is to let you in the future submit questions so that I can answer those questions during the podcast or my guest speakers can answer the questions you have for them. We'll make sure to announce those speakers before they come on so you can think of questions for them as well. But a little bit about me. If you don't know who I am, Justin Meisner, I am a fitness coach or a personal trainer, whatever you want to use for the words. I like to say I'm a biomechanical engineer because it sounds really smart. But at the end of the day, I work with people and their bodies and I make sure their bodies move well. If someone's shoulder hurts, I'm going to assess the shoulder, see what is going on at the shoulder and the joints surrounding the area and come to a logical conclusion as to what is happening in terms of dysfunction in the shoulder, and then create a training protocol that'll fix that so that moving forward, their shoulder does what a shoulder is supposed to do. My background in training is through the National Academy of Sports Medicine. I'm also a functional range conditioning mobility specialist, functional range assessment specialist. I've been a licensed kin stretch coach. I'm not doing that currently anymore. And then I'm also a WEC method qualified coach. On top of that, I've studied information from anything from ancient literature to modern scientific practices in nutrition and fitness. Basically means that I'm really good at giving you really random, useless bits of information. So why not make a podcast, at least for more useful bits of information? Something else to note, I don't ever plan to have any advertisements on this podcast. Not because I don't want to make money. I think everybody would say that it makes sense that you'd want to make money doing something. My hope is that if you like this podcast and you want to keep hearing me talk about things or being able to ask questions about things, that you go to my Patreon and make a donation. That way I can continue producing great content and I don't have to talk to you for five minutes partway through a podcast or at the beginning or the end about some random whey protein that's willing to pay me money to say that they're a good whey protein. If I'm going to endorse a product and you're going to hear me talk about it on the podcast, I'm going to endorse a product that I really like. So I'm not making any money off of it. I'm just going to say, this is a really good whey protein. There are some out there. I'm not going to talk about them right now. But I don't want to have to run an ad because I just don't want to do that. I think we get inundated with advertisements and propaganda all the time. I don't want to be a drop in that ocean. But again, that said, if you want this podcast to continue, and hopefully after this episode you do, you'll consider donating to the podcast so that I can continue running it. All right. Enough of the formalities and pleasantries. Oh, before I forget, if you're listening to this podcast through any of your favorite podcast mediums, just note you can also watch video of this podcast on YouTube, or I'll eventually have some links to Utreon and some other pages as well if you're not into YouTube. But just note you can also watch my face talk instead of just hearing my voice. 
I don't know if that's really a thing people are super into or not, but I seen this. I see a lot of podcasts that are doing that. So I figured I'd give it a go, see if I like the video part of it, and long term, if I'm interviewing people who I think are interesting to talk to, it might be nice to see us talking versus just hearing our ethereal voices over your speakers in your car or however you listen to the podcast. Okay, now I think the pleasantries are done. Let's get into the meat of this first episode. I wanted to make my first podcast a very foundational podcast, which means I want it to be educational and useful for you so that even if you don't listen to this podcast ever again, you're going to take away some information that will be helpful for you moving forward. And since this podcast is really going to be based on lots of science, looking at scientific information, looking at what's best, what are people doing, what's working, what's not working, we really should then ask the question, what is good science? Well, let's back that up even further. What is science? And of course, this is that kind of question where people might think, well, it's a pretty basic question. What is science? But then you ask someone that question, well, what is science? You ask for their definition and they either can't give you one or they quickly kind of muddle together some words. Well, it's, you know, this, you know, you do science to like find out if things are real or not. Right. If that is your version of that answer to the question, science is a pursuit of truth through a means that makes sense, is logical, and eliminates potential things from messing up the answer to the question. But that means that science isn't a person. It means that science isn't ever going to fully know the answer to the question because once you establish that it's true, there's some possibilities that it may not be true in the future. I mean, gravity is still a theory. Let, let Think about that for a moment. If you haven't thought about it before, gravity is still considered a theory. At least last I checked it was. And that's because it hasn't been proven to be wrong yet. Which brings me to my first point. How do we differentiate between good science and bad science? It's pretty straightforward. If you have a theory and you want to prove it to be right, you are doing bad science. If you have a theory and are trying to prove it to be right, you are doing bad science. Now, if you have a different theory and you want to see if it's wrong, you're probably going to do good science. Okay, so what's the difference there between those two? It seems to make sense if I have an idea or a theory, I want to see if it's right. Yeah, you do. But the way you should look at if it's right is by trying to prove it to be wrong. And that's a really important feature in good scientific research and good scientific practice. If I go into my theory hoping it being right, it's really easy to eventually prove yourself to be right because you can fudge data all day long and eventually be right to some level. But if you go in with the mindset that, man, I really think this could be true, let's see if I can find a way to show that it can't be true. And then you try and you try and you try and you can't seem to prove it to be false. Then odds are what you think is probably true. Again, probably. If gravity can still be a theory, then what you think can still be a theory. But we need to do good research because here's the thing. You can go on the internet today and find an article that's going to tell you that current scientific studies are saying that coffee is good for your heart. And then you can also find a study on the same article website saying that coffee is bad for your heart. What are we supposed to do with that? We're either looking at A, the pursuit of truth and better information is producing better results. Or B, looking at the studies you find, well, both these studies were bad research. They wanted to be right. So they produced a study that would likely produce the results they wanted. And on top of that, the question, is coffee good for your heart? What does that mean? 
is coffee good for your heart? That's so vague. That's like saying, is standing good for your body? Like, who asked that kind of question? It's not specific enough. What we should ask is, is caffeine good for your heart? Is the content of caffeine found in coffee good for your heart's heart rate and blood pressure? If you went and did that study and tried to prove yourself to be right, thinking it wasn't, or maybe proving that it was not good for your heart, or it was good, or whatever you want to do, it doesn't matter. But if you go with the mindset that you're just going to see if what you believe is be able to be falsified, then you'll find out that, shock, caffeine's not that good for your heart. Weird. I mean, if you have this kind of lens when you do scientific research, you can go and say McDonald's is good for your diet plan because you want it to be good for your diet plan. So you do a study with people who exercise a lot, who sleep pretty well and have pretty good habits, and they're allowed to eat McDonald's once a day. And you study them for six months. Oh, and most of them did pretty well. Again, for scientific research to be statistically interesting, it doesn't have to be like 90% result rates. It just has to be better than worse, which to me is a whole problem in and of itself. We'll get into that, into that at a different time. But then you're going to see some article on MSN's website or BuzzFeed or wherever other nonsense you want to read that says eating McDonald's as part of your diet is okay. Whereas most good scientific researchers, nutritionists, and everyone else would say, no, there's nothing about going to McDonald's that's good for you. Ever. It's highly processed junk food that doesn't process very well, doesn't digest very well, doesn't assimilate in your body very well. It's just not good for you. With that kind of logic, I can say that cardboard can be a part of a balanced diet. And that is how we solve the recycling of cardboard problem. You just eat the cardboard. Do you see what I'm saying? If we go with bad research, we can kind of say whatever we want. And then if I have people who are funding my research, who let's say Folgers funds research on coffee, do you think they're gonna fund research on coffee that proves coffee does not be so good for you? Might not be so great for their bottom line. I mean, no offense to anyone who likes Folgers, I don't drink coffee, but from what I can understand, people don't like Folgers coffee as a high quality coffee. But even Starbucks, they've done research on coffee before too, and they found results that seem to be favorable to coffee. So if you're wondering why I'm picking on coffee, it's because it's an easy example. If you like to drink coffee, more power to you. It's not gonna kill you to drink it, but if you think it's good for you, you're not gonna find that either. That's what we put in the category of eh. If you drink it and you don't go crazy with it, you're probably not gonna kill yourself, but would you be better off without it? Yeah, probably. Our culture has become a place that's made adrenaline deficient, cool so that way we can drink all this coffee. Anyway, that can be a whole different podcast. So now let's look at the other side of the coin, good research. You have a question and you wanna see if it's possible that it might be true. You're gonna create a study to try and disprove it because if coffee wasn't good for your heart, then it should be very easy. Let people drink lots of coffee, see what happens. Oh, they get high heart rates. Okay, yep, not good. I thought it was, it's not. Now I know we have better answers to those questions. But what about other things? Because now I'm sure if you're thinking about this type of mindset, bad science versus good science, you're starting to think about, well, I've read a lot of things now that say this exercise is good for this, this food is good for that. Now your wheels are starting to turn about all the things you've always heard that might be true or that might not be true. So how do you differentiate between good science and bad science? Number one, if it's a vague question, you're probably looking at a scientific study that might not be that great. 
because a question like, is coffee good for your heart, is pretty vague. I don't know what that means. Is coffee good for your heart? Like in what context? Is it good for your heart long term? Is it good for your heart for a temporary space of time? Is parts of coffee good for your Like where are we going with that question? Again, it's like saying, is standing good for you? Is looking outside a window once a day good for you? It's not a good question. Now you can make research around that question, but it has to be more specific to something which means it has to be looking at something highly specified instead of something highly vague. The vaguer the question, the easier it is to go, well, yeah, I mean, it kind of is, sort of. If you look at it through this lens and squint a little bit, you'll see that it's good for you. The better question, and let's take maybe protein, for example. Is whey protein good for you? Bad question. Because that's like saying, is protein good for you? Well, stop eating protein. See what happens. Most people would argue that you need protein in your body. The better question is, are there any downsides to taking whey protein versus, let's say, another protein powder? Okay, well, if you're lactose intolerant, whey protein's probably not a great option for you. But then I need to ask the other question. Does the quality of whey protein affect the outcome of whey protein powder? And then you need to do a study with a wide range of people differing ages, differing health and fitness levels, and study all of them at the same time using the same kind of product. But at the end of the day, those people's lives are going to be different. Some of them are going to have great three months, if that's how long your study is going to be. They'll have a great three-month span. They're probably going to get better results just because they're less stressed, sleeping better, and having a grand old time. That's different than the person who starts your study, loses their job, starts another job, isn't making enough money and having a hard time providing for their family. They're probably going to have less effective results because there's so many other factors outside of the whey protein that are going to affect them. So the best way to do scientific research then is not on this grand, vague scale, but on highly specified, highly researchable, and highly viewable things. So if the question is, is whey protein good for you? You might want to start with, does our body actually absorb whey protein? Because now I can do a study that's way more specific on, does the digestive tract actually absorb whey protein and assimilate it well? Other than the fact of people who might be lactose intolerant and not able to digest it very well in the first place. Okay, now we're asking a better question. Because now I can try and see, is whey protein even absorbable? Is this even something I can use? Better science. Now the question isn't a yes or no, can I prove it or not? But I'm going with the mindset to see, does the body even work with this stuff? Or is it just something I'm putting my body in? I don't die, so it must be okay. You'll find that you can't absorb whey protein, absolutely. But the quality of the protein powder will make a difference. The amounts you're going to take will make a difference. And your overall health of your digestive tract will make a difference. Because here's the thing, if your digestive system isn't working very well, then you don't digest very well. If you don't digest very well, you don't assimilate very well. And if you don't assimilate very well, when you're very well not getting the nutrients you're taking in. That's kind of the big joke about taking a multivitamin. If the multivitamin doesn't break down well in your system, it's just like taking a weird pellet, swallowing it, and later excreting it out of your body. But you feel better because you know you're taking a multivitamin. So point number one, if you're looking at research, is the research vague? If it's vague, you might want to be a little wary before you just assume what they're saying is true. Point number two, if you're reading an article on a website, 
that has lots of different articles on lots of different things. You might want to be a little wary of information on an article on a website. So anytime you read a, a bit of information that says, recent studies are showing, eh, I'm a little hesitant when I read that because I'm assuming that you know how to interpret scientific literature and that it is you giving me useful information versus information you're paid to give me. So again, it doesn't mean it's a wrong bit of research, but a vague question or something being touted as true because a scientific study said is not the greatest place to start for scientific research. Doesn't mean you can't read a news article that says something like that that can actually be useful. But just be wary if you're reading an article that's on L.com telling you that a new study shows that the best way to increase your butt is to do some weird exercise with rubber bands that this TikTok influence is doing. Odds are there's some payment and influence afoot there, and the information is not useful but cherry-picked. Now just think for a moment. This would be the part of the show where I would tell you about an advertisement to some product that you should take. And I might even say things like, recent studies show that taking this type of protein is actually the best way for your body to assimilate it. I've been taking it every day, and I can really tell the difference. That blah, blah protein is really the best kind of protein. Use code innate strength to get 10% off your first order. I'm not going to do that. Because one, I don't want to do that. And two, that to me sounds like cherry-picked information. I don't want to give you cherry-picked information. I want to give you accurate information, or at least as accurate as I'm able to give you. Because most people don't understand that good information doesn't just pop up out of thin air. Good information is produced by people who are thinking and asking the right questions. So first two points, avoid vague research. Be wary of research that's done via third party. Recent studies say, our recent studies found that eating toast backwards and upside down will increase your body's ability to digest it. What, what do you do with that? That doesn't exist. Don't worry. That's not an actual article. However, I bet you could probably find something that's comparable in the nonsense of that kind of research. Number three, look at the actual study. Now, there's a novel idea. When someone says a study is doing something and provo uh, providing information, I should look at the study and compare. Does the study actually say that? Because there's been plenty of times where people have said a recent study has shown, and then you go look at the study and it kind of either A, doesn't show that at all, which means they're misinterpreting the information, or B, it does say that, but the difference is like 0.05%. Recent study shows that more people do better with coffee than without coffee. You go look at the study. Well, 0.5%. And their population is people over the age of 40 who've been drinking coffee most of their life and live terrible lifestyles. I don't think that's a good study. So yeah, the recent study says it, but we can't use this information and just assume that because a study was done, therefore, the information is actually 100% accurate. Otherwise, we have information that's true that is literally contradictory of information that is also true. See, science has to be the study and pursuit of truth. Otherwise, it's the study and pursuit of my opinion. And opinions are useful in studying truth because if people have different thoughts and different mindsets, it can help them produce different ideas and results. If we all had the same hive mind, life would be pretty boring. We'd probably be boxed into weird viewpoints, but we wouldn't know the difference. 
being challenged and being able to question is one of the beautiful things about being a human and really being able to study things the way that we do. But doesn't mean that a study that has been done is therefore irrefutable dogmatic evidence of anything actually happening. Let's use an example in the fitness world. I've been kind of picking on nutrition things right now. I apologize if I've picked on anything that you love. Um, to all you coffee people out there, sorry. Not really though, but sorry. In fitness, I've been asked before to do uh, interview questions for articles on websites and different magazines and things. And usually the questions are things like, what's the best exercise for a six pack abs? What's the best exercise for building a big butt? And my, my answers never go onto their websites, by the way. I do answer them if I have the time. And I usually tell them that. Well, the problem with that mindset is it assumes that there is an exercise that is better for your glutes, so let's use that as an example, than another exercise. Which is true, a push-up is not a great glute building exercise because it doesn't use your glutes. But glute bridge, uh, let's do a deadlift, I mean squats, those all use your glutes. Is there one better than another for your glutes? Well, the answer for me is no. Because when it comes down to it, and this is the part we have to understand, from a very small biomolecular level, your body has these tiny things in them called cells, right? They're tiny little circles. If you can see my hand, you see me making a little okay sign. That's the little circle of the cell. And imagine the cell is like a grape. There's the skin, there's this weird gooey textury stuff, and then there's the seed on the inside. So that outer side is the membrane wall, the stuff that lets things pass through and not pass through. You have that interfluid space, and then you have the nucleus. Nowhere in that cell is there a brain, meaning there's nothing in there that lets it think and reason and decide what it's going to do today and what it's going to do tomorrow and its opinions about life. It doesn't think. Cells don't think. At least as far as we can see today, cells aren't thinking about what they're doing. They're just responding to stimulus, which means cells respond to some kind of force. If you were to put your finger on your forehead and poke right between your eyes and hold it there for 10 minutes and then remove your finger, you would have a dumb little red blood circle in between your eyes. It's like when someone falls asleep with their seatbelt on their face. Their face is all red from where the seatbelt was. Why? There was force being applied to that place and the blood flow increased to the place that there was force. This is a super easy example of how we know our cells respond to stimulus, especially force. So then let's go back to the question. What's the best exercise for your glutes? My answer is any exercise that you can properly contract your glutes in movement. That's it. Glute bridge? Sure. Deadlift? Sure. Squat? Sure. Other exercises? Sure. As long as you understand that the cells of your body aren't going to respond to well, well, he's just doing a squat right now. The glute muscles, we'll, we'll kind of use those, but we won't really add a bunch of nutrition and, and muscle building to those. They're waiting around for the deadlift. And then one day you do deadlift. The cells don't all of a sudden go, it's deadlift day. Add all the stuff to this stuff. That makes no sense. They don't think that way. It's all just a response to force. So there's no best exercise in terms of a specific exercise that I would give someone for that. And so that really is just a bad question. But I mean, how often do you see in news articles, magazines, internet articles, YouTube posts, whatever, 
A list of exercises that are great for your glutes. Now that's a better question. A list of exercises that are good for your glutes. But when someone then tries to say, this is my workout routine for my, my big booty, and it's the best one out there, and you'll get great results. Okay, but I mean, you could do any glute exercises and slowly build up your glute muscles. So what's your point? Or your point is that you have yours and you make money off of it, so it's more interesting for you to be right than it is to just say, well, the cells of your body respond to force, so any exercise that properly activates the glute muscles will be a good exercise for your glute muscles. Go figure. But this is going to be true for any muscle group then. So best exercise for a six-pack abs, eat better and work out your abdominals. That's it. Probably get a coach. Really, any of these questions that are about fitness are always going to end with, for me, go get a coach who can properly teach you how to do a squat, how to do abdominal crunches and movements. Because a lot of people think they know how to move their bodies, but they don't realize that just by doing the movement of a squat doesn't automatically make their squat perfect. It's about the contractile force of the tissue. And if you don't choose to contract the force tissue, you have a very high probability of just contracting any tissue to make the movement happen which is what we call dysfunction or the path of least resistance, which is great in the realm of if I move in the best path of least resistance. But there's so much dysfunction in our world today, I can't imagine that most people move with the right path of least resistance. And then they lose that path. And now all they have is the dysfunctional path of movement. So you see, if I look at science from this lens of trying to prove myself to be right, I'm going to most likely cherry pick the information and instead of proving myself to be right, I'm just going to be echoing my nonsense. But if I go into a study with the hope that I'm right, but trying to disprove it to be wrong, then I'm more likely to come to a truthful answer if I'm actually right because I can't prove it to be wrong. Right? If I take 2 plus 2, it equals 4. Try and prove that wrong. Well, I can take two rocks over here and two rocks over here. I put them together. It's four rocks. Well, maybe I need to do this like upside down with apples. If I have two apples over here and two apples over here, that makes four. What if I had an apple over here, three over here, and I put them together? Well, that still makes four. Seems like two plus two is going to equal four. And I know there's some math person out there who's going to tell me how some way in some nonsensical world there's a way you can make two plus two not equal four. Um, Great, congratulations, thanks for that information. Um, it doesn't really mean anything in the realm of the spectrum of where we're at. Because then I would just say, so does that mean two plus two never equals four? Well, no, it still does. Okay, great, then two plus two equals four. You see what I'm saying? We just need to think more carefully about our science, about our studies, and about how we see information. I mean, let's take the keto diet, for example. This is a diet that has been proposed by lots and lots of people. Proposed is not a word by by the way, it's purported by lots of people as like this amazing diet and we should be doing it because our ancestors used to do it and all this different stuff and information. But the question's not being asked, is keto actually good for you? They're just showing, well, people are losing weight, blah, blah, blah. All this stuff is happening. Great. Well, if you look at the first question, why should we do keto? Well, our ancestors used to do it. They used to kill a woolly mammoth and then eat the entire mammoth, lots of meat and fat. Look at the Inuit tribes up near Alaska and the Arctic Circle. They eat nothing but whale blubber and they survive. So therefore, it's the best diet and they have really healthy hearts, all those good things. But let's look a bit closer at that, shall we? Uh, so let's say if 3,000, however many years ago back you want to go to when people were eating woolly mammoths or whatever. Cool. Uh, do humans adapt over time? I think 
large consensus is yes, even in a, a small microbiological scale, if I go outside, uh, my skin will tan over time if it's hot and sunny. That's adap adaptation. Now the question is, do humans long-term adapt to their environments? And I think the answer can still be, well, yes, they do. So are you really gonna say that what humans were doing thousands of years ago is exactly what humans should be doing now? Because more evidence seems to point to the fact that humans change over time. And the way humans were eating a long time ago is no longer congruent because we don't live that way anymore and we haven't been for some time. That doesn't mean that eating less carbohydrates and eating higher quality fats and less processed foods isn't good for you. But see, that's not keto. Keto specifically is a diet that forces your body into starvation mode and ketosis under the guise of it being healthier because you'll lose weight. And again, there are great results with doing a keto diet in a temporary, acute, or small-term space. But as a long-term lifestyle, it doesn't make sense. And there's contradictory information and research on both sides of the spectrum. But the question that was asked at the beginning, or at least what I'm trying to see when people talk about keto, what's so great about it? Well, it's just the way humans were supposed to eat. Says who? Where's your proof that that's how humans are supposed to eat? Well, we did eat that way a long time ago. Okay but we're not eating that way anymore and we're not dead. So what's going on? Oh, but you know, processed foods are making people really sick and they're eating all this crap and they're diabetes, right? Is that because they're not eating keto or because they're eating highly processed sugars and carbs and no movement anymore? See, that's the question we need to ask. Is keto actually the best optimal way for a human to live, right? Cause then it has to assume that keto is not just a diet of what we eat, but also how we live and operate. Or do people just need to cut back on all the crap that they've been eating because we had too much processed food, too much candy, too much sugar, not enough movement, too much sedated movement, all those kinds of things. Sedentary movement. I think I said sedated. That doesn't make any sense. I'm talking about sleepwalking. I'm talking about people who don't move very much. And when they do move, it's not very much. See, that's a better question because now if I look at the question of just, is keto good for you? Well, I can find a host of reasons why it's not. So that's not a good question. Is it bad research? I think sometimes it is, but I think there's been plenty of research to show that keto can have benefits for people. But it doesn't mean that therefore, because a study shows it has benefits, that keto is the way people should be eating. See, that's where we get that confusion in because right, all the way right, might just be right in that context, right? So let's say that's our next point. Some information is right in context, does not make it universally right all the time and everywhere. Because is fasting good for you? Yes. I think there's plenty of research and studies that show that fasting long-term is good for you. Oh, so I should just never eat again. No, 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 no. That's called dying. Intermittent fasting or fasting occasionally has some benefits for you. It works in the context of space of a small period of time. Long-term, is it good for you? Well, no, you'll eventually die. I mean, I think it's like after 40 days, a person can't live after eating. If you're not drinking water, it's like seven days. So you got to eat. You got to drink. You got to do things. But there are benefits to giving your body a break from digestion and letting your cells repair better when there's no food in the system for a short period of time. Plenty of good research on that. Better question, better research. And then making sure that the question stays in the context of the bubble of which it was asked. Right, that's our last point that we were just talking about. So, so far, if you're looking at research or looking at things people are saying in the health and fitness world, you're starting to hopefully get a better lens for how do I know if this information is good 
And how do I know this information is bad? Or how do I know that I need to look into it a bit further? Because if we don't do that first, then even this podcast, I'm just going to start saying whatever I think sounds cool, what I think is right. And don't get me wrong, when I first started as a coach, I oftentimes would talk about how I'm right and how, well, now I know foam rolling is bad for you. Oh, now I know the best diet is X, Y, or Z. And I wouldn't say those things anymore. I would say that I don't think foam rolling does what people think it does. I don't think it's bad. I just don't think it's solving the problems that people want it to solve. Mm-hmm. Just like I would say, I don't think every diet is going to fit. Like a paleo diet is going to fit everybody. A keto diet is not going to fit everybody. A vegan diet is not going to fit everybody. So what's the best diet? Well, it's the one that works for you, that makes you happy, that you can consistently stay healthy, fits within your budget, and is realistic. And for me, that's probably a hybrid of a lots of different things. Like, here's a fun fact. If you look at all major fad diets that are out there, anyone that have been around a long time, ones that have been around a short time, keto, paleo, primal, vegan, vegetarian, episcatarian, uh, I think there's even now like a daritarian where you eat nothing but dairy products. Um, yeah, I think that's actually a thing. Go look it up. If you look at all these diets, most of the time, besides the dairitarian one, I don't think this one counts, most of the time that what they'll tell you to do is eat local foods, eat whole foods, eat lots of vegetables and fruits, eat clean protein sources, sleep well, exercise, drink more water than other products, and get sunlight time. Oh, and also don't eat carbs. Or if you're vegan. Oh, and also don't eat any meat. Oh, and also never eat carbs ever again. Oh, and also don't eat potatoes. See, that's the, that's the thing about a diet is they put this one thing in there that's like, this is the thing. So keto, the thing is all fat, no carb, some protein. That's the thing that works. But it has nothing to do with the fact that you're also just eating good, healthy food. Even veganism, the, the thing that's good for you is the fact that you're no longer eating meat. Not the fact that a good, healthy vegan diet is just consuming whole foods that you make at home and you get locally and you source well and you eat well. Odds are it's all that other stuff you're doing in the diet that is causing you to be healthier. You're exercising. If you never exercised before and switched to any of those diets, you'd probably have better results. Again, probably excluding the dairitarian diet. I have really nothing to say about that one. I would like to say that eating ice cream and milk and cheese and yogurt for the rest of your life is the best way to go, but I just can't imagine that that's true. However, haven't looked into it, so I'll let you know next time if I have the opportunity to research that one a bit more. But the other ones that I mentioned, if you haven't been moving very well, haven't been eating very well for a long time, and then you start to eat whole foods, lots of vegetables, sleep better, start exercising, do you really think it's because you're paleo that you're feeling better? Do you think it's really because that you're vegan that you're feeling better? Or do you think that maybe, just maybe, it's because you're doing healthy things for your body that has nothing to do with the weird side thing that the diet requires? I'm going to wager it's because you're eating healthy, you're exercising, you're doing healthier habits. That's why you're feeling better. But then we stamp on this diet as, well, people have keto diets and they lose tons of weight. Okay. People lose lots of weight on a vegan diet, their heart rate, pressure, blood pressure, all those things go down. Okay. Is it because they went vegan or is it because they started eating real food? Now, this is not me trying to knock any one of these diets. If you enjoy eating vegan and you're healthy and you're happy with it, like more power to you. If you want my opinion, I think there are better diets out there. But we're in a world where people can make their own choices and make their own decisions. And I think you can do a vegan diet well. I just don't think it's for everybody. I think you can do a primal diet well. It's just not for everybody. I think you can do a keto diet short term 
but it's not a sustainable long-term diet plan. But I've come to those conclusions based on looking at the evidence that's out there and deciding on are they asking the right questions or are they even answering the right questions? And are we looking at this through the right lens? And if I'm not looking at it through the lens of good scientific research, which is looking for truth, then all I'm really finding is just a bunch of information that's useful for my narrative right now. And then later on, I'll change it because, well, it doesn't fit me anymore. I need to find something that fits me a bit better. Don't become that person. Don't think that there's a best diet that you can find in a book. Don't think that there's a best exercise or a best exercise tool. Good grief. Exercise tools have become a whole new ballpark in and of themselves. There are so many things out there you can do now and weird tools you can buy. And again, if you were to ask me a few years ago, I would have probably told you that everything is junk. All you really need is a good weight set, dumbbells, kettlebells, barbell, whatever, and to understand good proper movements, but you don't need all that kitschy random stuff. Now I would say, if you enjoy it and it's helping you lose weight and you move well because of it and it's good movement patterns, I don't really care. Like if you'd rather use like a weird resistance band setup that some guy made up in a yoga class and it works for you, and it's not dangerous and it is improving your overall mechanics, like, okay, great. If the goal is better movement and healthier bodies, then you can use any tool to get there. The problem is you don't need every tool to get there. In my opinion, you can get kettle, a set of kettlebells and a battle rope and you'll never need anything else ever again for a good exercise program. Does that mean that's the only way you can exercise now? Well, no. If you hate kettlebells, then don't use them. There are plenty of other things you can get out there and use. But you can definitely get all of your exercise needs done with kettlebells. You can get all your exercise needs done with resistance bands if that's really what you want to go for. You just eventually have to buy some pretty heavy bands to be able to create some pretty high resistance. But if there's a study saying that the barbell is the most efficient tool for squats and it produces the best results and it produces the healthiest people. Okay, well, I already know that that's not true. Uh, not because a barbell isn't good for you or you can't use one but it's a tool that works in its space and you can't say it's the best one because there are other things out there. There are better movement things out there. There's so many things you could be doing other than barbell work. If you love a barbell, it makes you happy and you're healthy and moving and that's the big thing. I know lots of people who move barbells and they're really, really, really tight. Their mobility sucks, their body is in pain, but they can squat 500 pounds or whatever it is. Okay, you might wanna reassess your priorities there and make sure that you are actually being healthy with the exercise modality that you're using. Anyway, that was a little digression on fitness tools. We'll probably get into that another time as well. Uh, I'm hoping that you are thinking now a bit more about scientific research, not just for food and fitness, but for anything. That you're gonna start looking at things with an appropriate lens and understand that just because you say something or you read something or some guy in a lab coat says, this study now says that X, Y, or Z, that you're not just gonna take it at face value or maybe even hearing how the study was done, you can immediately go, well, that's a really vague question. The conclusion they came to is really microscopic evidence at best. Then you might be able to say, okay, I don't think I'm gonna buy this study right now. We'll see if something new comes out that is consistent with that. The example that I like to use with people is with uh, kinesiology tape. It's a really popular tool and it became really popular really suddenly and I've been looking at the research on it lately, and I gotta say, I don't get it. There's not a whole lot of research that shows that it actually does anything more than maybe a placebo. Now, if it's a placebo and it works, 
great. I don't think there's a problem with a placebo. If you can take a pill that's sugar and it makes your cancer go away, am I really going to say that's bad? No, it's just weird. Humans are weird. I think we just need to get used to the fact that we're weird and people can cure their cancer sometimes with the placebo pill being told that it'll cure their cancer. Don't know how that works. Don't understand it. But if it's actually making the cancer go into remission, great. Same thing then with KT tape. If it's actually producing a result for somebody, I'm not going to knock the entire program. But if I look at the research that's being done with KT tape, well, what's the belief? Well, that it's lifting the skin. And because the skin is lifted, it's creating better blood flow and, and things are getting better. There are studies that are done on the, the skin lifting thing, but all they prove is that it does lift the skin. It doesn't prove that it increases blood flow or does anything else. Uh, there's actually no studies that can conclusively prove that KT tape being laid in any pop proper angle or anything like that actually matters. Again, tissue, it's force. If I apply force this way on the tissue versus this way, and I'm pointing up and I'm pointing to my left, is it actually going to make a difference on the space? Or is it just the fact that it's lifting the tissue that makes the difference? Because there are whole schools out there now, and you can get certified in KT tape application. But the long-term benefits of it seem to be that it's like taking Advil for a headache. Wouldn't you rather just figure out why you keep getting a headache and fix it so you don't need the Advil anymore instead of continually taking Advil every day to function? Wouldn't you rather get to the point where your knee doesn't hurt anymore and you don't need to apply KT tape on the lateral side of your leg to make your leg feel better? That's what I would think people would want to do. So again, doesn't mean KT tape is 100% useless. But if someone were to ask me, should I use KT tape? I would say, I don't think there's enough evidence to say that it's really doing a whole lot. That said, some people have used it and had great results in a temporary space. It just depends on if you want to get stuck having to buy a product for forever or being able to actually move forward and do something with your life that feels better long-term. Again, not saying taping is useless. I'm just saying that based off the information we have, I can't tell you that it's great. I can't tell you that it's a miracle worker. All I can tell you is that it has anecdotal evidence at best. And if you like using it and you're okay spending the money on it and understanding that it may not ever fix anything, then yeah, go for it. I realize that that sounds really negative and I didn't mean it to be that way, but oh well, I guess that's what happened. All right. Well, I've had a really great time on this first ever podcast and I hope I've given you some useful information. If you have questions for me, some great ways you can reach out to me. You can reach out at my website, www.innatestrengthtraining.com. That's all one word and just go to my contact page and reach out that way. If you're on Instagram, you can go to at innate.strength. Find me there, and you can reach out and DM me a message there. You can also email me at justin at innatestrengthtraining, all one word, dot com, and ask me your questions. Again, this can be on anything fitness-related. It can be just about, is there only one right way to squat? Or I keep squatting and my knee hurts. What's going on? I've been told that I should be eating more carbohydrates, but I've been trying to avoid grains. What should I be doing for my carb intake if I'm trying to avoid grains? Ask the questions, because if you ask the questions, I can answer them. If you don't ask me the question, I can't give you an answer. And at this point, that's what I want my show to be about. So send your questions to me so I can answer your questions. The next podcast is still gonna be just me. I'm still working on the people I'm gonna have in my interviews. But the next podcast is going to be more specific towards movement patterns and exercise. And do the movement patterns matter? Or as I would say is, form may not actually matter at all. In the grand scheme of things, your form may be completely irrelevant to how well you move. If you disagree with me or agree with me, that's fine. 
Make sure you tune in, subscribe so you can hear the next episode and see if I actually have a point to make or if I'm just spouting off a bunch of useless information. I know it's a little clickbaity, but it seems to work for everybody else and it's a good question. I think you'll find that what I will provide in that episode is going to be useful information in terms of how we view form in exercise. Is it useless? Is it not? You'll have to wait and find out. Thank you for tuning into the Innate Strength Podcast. My name is Justin. Until next time.